Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word today. But before that, a quick question. When something good happens in your life, or when God begins to do something in your life, or you choose to do something for God, what is the guaranteed outcome of that? Somebody's going to complain. Somebody's going to gripe. Somebody's going to criticize. Somebody's going to try to tear you down. And if it happens to you, don't fret too much because it also happened to the Apostle Peter, the leader of the apostles. That's our story today. Piggybacks on what we went over last week. We'll get a little bit of a recap. We are in Acts chapter 11 today. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them? Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance, I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice from heaven a second time, or spoke from heaven a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up into heaven again. Right then, three men who had sent, been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them, as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Then the story goes on. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. 
When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Bartimaeus went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. They did this, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Father God, thank you for seeing to it that this important work throughout history has been recorded in your word. And Lord, today as we take time to consider your word and to contemplate it and to learn, I pray for the work of your Holy Spirit to teach, to instruct each of us gathered here in this place, in these moments, those who are watching online, those who will watch even at a later date. Lord, I pray for your spirit to work in the hearts and minds of each person to call them into a relationship with you, to strengthen their faith, to deepen their faith, to correct their course, to change character, to conform us more and more to Jesus as your word gets into our hearts and into our minds and transforms us from within through the work of your Holy Spirit. Lord, for those of us who are doubting, I pray for words of assurance, words that will bring certainty. Lord, for those of us who are discouraged, I pray for words of encouragement that your work in our lives cannot be stopped and will not be hindered by any force outside of ourselves. Lord, for those of us who just need something more from you this day to carry on in faith, Lord, I pray that we will receive it, not only through our time in your word, but our time in in worship and prayer and fellowship of dedicating this time to you. We avail ourselves to the work of your Holy Spirit. And as always, Lord God, I ask for my words to not get in the way of your word, but for you to work, to speak, to bring glory to yourself as we lift up your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray as our Savior, as our Lord, as as your son, O Father God. Amen. Amen. Would you please be seated? So this is a recap of the story from Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 records the event that has forever changed the world. There is no other reason for a Jewish preacher of righteousness, a Jewish worker of miracles who spent 90% of his life and ministry in the sticks and the backwaters of a podunk little country in the midst of the Roman Empire 20 centuries ago to have such a huge impact on the world today or on our lives. It's only because of what Jesus' followers did in taking his good news of teaching and instructing others, of breaking 
socioeconomic barriers and racial barriers and religious barriers that we have come down to this time where Jesus, for most of us, at least in this room and most of us online, Jesus is the centerpiece of our lives. He is Lord. He is the one in charge. He is the one who has authority over us. We only know that because his followers 20 centuries ago were faithful in listening to God and doing what God told them to do. Acts chapter 10 is when the Gentiles, all of the non-Jewish ethnicities all lumped into one, is when the first Gentiles also acceded to the lordship of Jesus. And up until this time, which was probably within the first few years of the church, it had been a little bit of time since the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. But up to that point, everybody was Jewish. Jesus was a Jewish man. He was God in the flesh, but that flesh was that of a Jewish first century male. All of the original disciples... Those disciples who then became the apostles, the sent ones, the missionaries of Jesus, they were all Jewish. All of the first, the tens of thousands of first believers were all Jewish. God's plan, however, had always been for the Gentiles to be included in the family of God as well. Yes, God had called and he had created the Jewish people. He had carved out within human history a specific uh, ethnicity of his people who would then be the carriers of the gospel, the Messiah, into the world. That was the Jewish people. But the plan of God did not stop with the creating of a nation, the calling of a people. The goal of God's plan has always been to create a new humanity aligned with him out of the world. That was God's plan from the beginning. This is God's end game. The gospel for the whole world, for all people, for all time. Let's look at a passage in the book of Ephesians where Paul kind of articulates this. Let's work through this just a little bit. I need it on the screen, though. <laughs> Ephesians 2? You don't have Ephesians 2. All right. Mistakes happen. So, turn in your Bibles, or turn in your Bible apps, <laughs> to Ephesians 2. Here's what Paul says. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, big issue, we'll get to that in just a few moments. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. 
the Jew-Gentile barrier. God's people, not God's people. That's been done away with. All can be God's people now through Jesus. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of the household. That's what Jesus does. Jesus came so that there would be no more division of God's people and not God's people. Ethnically. Ethnically. There would be no more delineation. Instead, God's people would be all those who respond from every ethnicity. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's why the church continues to be the singular, multi-ethnic, multi-socioeconomic. The church is the most inclusive entity on the planet. Now, there are, some, there are some quarters of Christianity where that message hasn't gotten through very well. But overall, around this globe, on every continent and from every people, there are those who believe Jesus died for their sins and that he rose from the dead. And in that belief, they are made new. They are made brothers and sisters with everybody else who believes that around the world. This is the picture from heaven. Revelation 7, verse 9. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one can count. Oh, there it is. That no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Just let that soak in for a moment. In heaven the throng that will be there in the presence of God, those who are saved for eternity, is from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language. Now, the great thing about heaven is you don't have to press one for English. It will all work out. <laughs> but heaven is for everybody. And that's the, that's the beauty and the power and the picture of heaven. They were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and they were holding prom branches in their hand. And then the text goes on, and they were praising God. That's what it means to be in the presence of God. But it will be everybody from everywhere. All who believe in Jesus, though. You see, that's the end game. That's the plan. Is it God's people in this world was being expanded in its definition and in its constituency from just those of the right bloodline ethnically to those with the right bloodline faithically. Through fa That's just the stupid word, don't. <laughs> Billy will edit that out of the, out of the version later. But, but through faith, 
common, shared, unifying belief in Jesus, we are made one. That's the end game. But to get to the end game, some very real prejudices and customs had to be overcome, had to be broken. And we see that by what Peter did. Realizing that the Gentiles would be welcomed in as, as God's family and making it a reality required direct intervention from God. I said, we don't know the timeline. It was, it was probably within, within a few years, uh, maybe two to three years or, or somewhere around that timeline before this incident with Cornelius happened. It may have even been just a little bit later. But all of the first believers were Jewish. Now it was time to bring the Gentiles in. Jesus had already commissioned, right before his ascension, go into the end of the earth, go into all the world, make disciples in every nation, which literally means all ethnicities, because we're one race. We're not different races. We are the human race. There's different ethnicities within the one race, but we are just simply one race. We are the human race. But Jesus commissioned his followers to take his good news, the message of his lordship, the message of new life through him to every ethnicity because there is no longer to be prejudice and ostracization, ostracizing people. <laughs> None of that is supposed to be happening anymore. But despite Jesus' commands, they remain centered in Jerusalem and consisted exclusively of ethnically Jewish believers. It would be a Roman centurion named Cornelius, a God-fearing man, a godly man, a devout man, a gracious man, a generous man, a man of righteousness, according to the scriptures, the scriptural definition of righteousness, who would be selected as the first of the Gentiles to be welcomed officially into the family of God. His family, his household, many believers evidently had a, he had a large entourage because he was a Roman centurion. He was a man of influence and power. And the scriptures in Acts 10 say this, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their, of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus. The Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus, is that what unifies us? Now Peter's entourage included Six other Jewish believers. This was important because that number doubles the traditional Jewish standard for legal corroboration by witnesses, which required two or three. Peter doubled up just for extra authority and influence. Every voice was necessary because Peter, even with his stature as a revered apostle, as the leader of the apostles, 
was interrogated upon his return to Jerusalem. The issue was not the preaching to the Gentiles. The, the, the Jewish believers, the Jewish leaders were okay with that. They didn't even seem to be too upset that Gentiles became believers in Jesus. They were okay with that. What was the issue was that Peter, as a devout Jewish man still, even with his faith in Jesus, went in to a Gentile's house. Now, that's not forbidden in the Mosaic law, but it was embedded deeply in, in, the, in the law outside the law, the, the legal customs and the traditions of the Jewish people. You don't enter into a Gentile house. If do, you're doing so, you become unclean. And you certainly don't sit down and have a meal together with them. Kosher dietary laws, the cleansing, purification rituals, all of that were out the window with Gentiles. And so all of these actions made Peter unclean as a Jewish man. That's what the issue was. And the significance of this issue cannot be understated. Up until this point, it was assumed completely logically, I might add. I'm not sure how anybody would have thought anything different without the direct intervention of the Holy Spirit. Up to this point, it was simply understood that anybody who was going to believe in Jesus as the Messiah had to become Jewish first because Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. It would be a prerequisite for acceding to Jesus' lordship. Well, you've got to be if you're, if you're going to have the, the Jewish Lord, you've got to become Jewish in order to have the Lord reign over you. you you've got to be Jewish because he came to, to redeem his people. And so that was the understanding. That just That's what was logically understood by all these Jewish believers because God had taken all of this time and all of this effort to give the law and to, to work out all the things of history for the Jewish people. That's what they understood was necessary in order to become a believer in Jesus. The, the dietary restrictions, the dress codes, the act of circumcision, following the Mosaic law, all those things. It was assumed that these define being the people of God. And so that even those Gentiles who would then also become believers in Jesus were expected to become Jews in all of these respects after coming to faith in Jesus because that was part and parcel of the deal. That's why God had to intervene because all of the, the dietary laws and the Mosaic law and the setting up of the people of God and the orchestrating of all these things throughout history, it was all just part of the preparation. It was not, a, it was not part of the ongoing plan. And so God directly intervenes while Peter is telling Cornelius and his family and this, this, this somewhat large assembly in, in Cornelius' household, while Peter is telling them about Jesus, his life, his ministry, all the things that he did and all the things that he said, and he's, he's telling them who Jesus is, the Holy Spirit makes a special and spectacular appearance. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes upon these Gentile people and they are able to do exactly what the Jewish believers in Jesus did on the day of Pentecost. They were able to speak in tongues. 
Speaking in tongues is not gibberish. Speaking in tongues is actual human languages that are unlearned, and they're able to speak them fluently. The gift of the Holy Spirit in this manner demonstrated starkly, definitively, concrete, concretely, and conclusively to Peter and these six other Jewish uh, Christian leaders that the Holy Spirit does not show favoritism. The Holy Spirit is not given to the Gentiles in a secondary manner. They do not get a cut-rate Holy Spirit. They do not get half the Holy Spirit. They get the full effect of the Holy Spirit in including them as the family of God. So it comes to this issue of what does it mean to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to say a couple things. Number one, this is a little bit of a controversial subject. And if you disagree with me, you have every right to be wrong. It is completely okay. This is a secondary issue. I have strong thoughts on it because I have strong thoughts on a lot of things. So if you believe a little bit differently, that's okay. But what you believe, make sure it's backed up with Scripture and not history, tradition, or experience. Back it up with Scripture. That's what I'm going to try to do here. To be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and this is an important issue because unfortunately some Christian groups have created an, an entire theological, an entire theology, a construct around this concept. And unfortunately, it has led to either elitism or exclusion. As a believer in Jesus, as one who has been called to serve Jesus, I have actually been told to my face that I am not even a true Christian because I have never been baptized with the Holy Spirit according to their definition and their understanding. I've had others who, who have looked upon me with great pity because I do not speak in tongues. You see, the Holy Spirit is given to create inclusion and unity. It is to, He is to unify, not to divide, not to exclude, not to differentiate. The, 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 the gifting of the Holy Spirit as a gift to every believer and then the gifting that the Spirit gives to individual believers is all to create harmony and unity and effectiveness in the church. It is, it is not an issue upon which Christians are to divide. The baptism with the Holy Spirit has become a rather warped theology. Now the word baptism itself is actually pretty clear. Baptism, as an English word, is a transliteration, not a translation, of a Greek word. The Greek word baptizo means to immerse, to submerge, or plunge. It does not mean sprinkle, nor does it mean pour. The Greek language had other words for those actions. So this idea of immersion or submersion is, is pretty clear. Associating this term with the work, the power, and the presence of the Holy Spirit refers to a totality or a completeness of work. When you're baptized, you are baptized. You are plunged, submerged, dunked, immersed all the way under the water. That's what baptizo means. It means to, 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 to be all in. It's not a momentary, a singular, or a limited expression. It's not a, a special work. It is not a subsequent work of the Holy Spirit. 
the, the, that phrasing, baptism with the Holy Spirit, actually only appears like six times in the entire New Testament. Four times it's spoken by, uh, the, or by, the, by John the Baptist when he's prophesying about what will make Jesus distinct. And it's, an, it's, an, it's a prophecy, it's an allusion to Jesus. When Jesus comes, Jesus will, will submerge people. Jesus will baptize people with the Holy Spirit because that's, Jesus takes up residency within the human spirit, within the human heart through faith. We, we learn that in, in Galatians and, and also Ephesians. It means the, the work of Jesus in our lives will be eternal. It, it, internal, it will not be the merely external following of laws or, 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 or going through rituals. It's a work of the heart. Four times John the Baptist uses it, each of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus does say it himself in Acts 1.8 to the apostles. I, uh, John baptized with water. I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So it's Jesus to the apostles. And then Peter quotes Jesus here in Acts 11. The phraseology baptism with the Holy Spirit does not appear in any of the epistles. It does not appear in any of the other books of the New Testament. And even in the Acts passages where it's, where it's talked about, uh, where, this, where this, this miraculous gift of tongues is given, a working of the Spirit is given to the Samaritans and to, to the Gentiles in Cornelius' household, it's not referred to as baptism. It's referred to as the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon them for the Samaritans. And for, the, for Cornelius' household, it's, oh, they had not yet received the Spirit. They had been baptized with water. The, bap the word of baptism always is associated with water in the New Testament, with one singular exception. We'll get to that in just a second. The baptism with the Holy Spirit is not a separate work of the Spirit apart from conversion, nor is it a particular gifting, such as the ability to fluently speak unlearned languages. Once we have received the Holy Spirit through faith at our conversion, then Scripture says, Scripture never commands, now, now, now seek getting baptized with the Spirit. That language is not in the New Testament at all. But instead, now that the Holy Spirit has been given to believers, we are to be filled with the Spirit, which is not an ecstatic emotional experience. There's very tangible, practical steps of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5, read it. Some powerful stuff in there. We are to walk by the Spirit. We are to keep in step with the Spirit. We are to pray in this Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. The baptism with the Holy Spirit is the regenerative work of the Spirit, removing us from the world and placing us in Christ. Being baptized with the Spirit means that our spirit is completely regenerated, renovated, changed, transformed, and transitioned from being in the world to now being in Christ. It's where we go from being dead in sin to alive with Christ. The granting and gifting of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us is done upon our confession of faith at the time of our baptism. Acts 2, 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, the authority of Jesus. 
for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul assures us that there is only one baptism, which is the unifying and empowering work of the Spirit where we are marked as sealed unto God. The Spirit is given to give us new life, and as the Spirit gives us new life, we are then made one with one another. The differentiation in spiritual gifts is never to be used as any kind of status for spiritual superiority or spiritual exclusion. The Spirit unifies. And that's the one point of of baptism with the Spirit that Paul brings out in 1 Corinthians 12. For we were all baptized by one Spirit so as to speak in tongues, perform miracles, get words of knowledge, be spiritually superior, feel extra holy. Dang it, I hate when Scripture gets it wrong. No, we get it wrong. For we were all baptized by one Spirit when we confessed our faith, when we turned to Jesus, when when we repented of our sins, when we yielded to Jesus and his authority by being baptized into Christ. To form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given the one Spirit to drink. The Spirit is who unifies us. Makes the two one. Ultimately, the other Jewish leaders in Jerusalem accepted Peter's story and rejoiced that even to Gentiles, God had granted repentance that leads to life. The rejoicing was genuine. Obstacles still existed, and those will be addressed in Acts chapter 15. We'll get there in a few weeks. But this was momentous. This is why we, as believers in the modern age, with our different ethnic backgrounds, our different ethnic identities and heritages, it is why we, from different socioeconomic and different educational levels and different life experiences, it is how Jesus has made us one in spite of being so different in so many ways on so many things. Jesus makes us one. Now, the, the last section of, of, of chapter 11 is a little bit weird. It's kind of, it's, it's kind of a weird interposition of, of some other details, but there's important stuff in there. It's how the church grew and spread. We learn about evangelism. We learn about how Christians cooperate to give aid to those in need. As other Gentiles became believers, a new word was coined to define those with allegiance to Jesus as Savior and Lord, the word Christian. The word means Christ's one or of Christ. We use it mostly as an adjective, so to speak now. We have Christian music, Christian uh, entertainment. We have Christian cruises. We have Christian books. We have Christian, you know, bumper stickers, all this kind of stuff. It's not supposed to be used that way. Christian is supposed to refer to a person who belongs to Jesus. We are Christ's one. We are of Christ. That's the origin of the new word. Surprisingly, how many times the word Christian appears in the entire Bible? 
three times. That's it. It's a good word, though. Rather besmirched in our day and in our culture, unfortunately. But it simply means that we belong to Jesus. And it's my hope and my prayer that if that is our name, if that is what is attached to us, that we are representing Jesus well. That's always the challenge. We learn also in this passage that sharing faith in Jesus was, was absolutely natural for these first Christians. As they scattered into the world, as they relocated, as they escaped persecution, as they established homes and reestablished businesses, as they set up their social networks, they could not help but talk about Jesus because of who he is and what he had done. The kingdom grew through the faithfulness of unnamed masses of average, ordinary believers, and that is still the case today. Yeah, we have famous preachers, and they have big platforms, and they can do all their, their fancy things, but the majority of kingdom work is done by average, ordinary, everyday people simply living for Jesus loving others on behalf of Jesus, serving others in the name of Jesus, sharing their faith. That's the bulk work of the kingdom. It's you, it's me, it's us, it's anybody, it's everybody. And it always has been. Sharing Jesus was natural. And we see that also natural for those who are of Christ is care for those who are suffering verses 27 through 30 there of the last part of the chapter, record the first cooperative fundraising effort for those in need. The Gentiles were raising money for the Jewish believers to help them. It's a beautiful picture. A lot to learn in this chapter, but let's bring it home. Application for our life, first and foremost, have you like so many billions before us. Have you accepted Jesus? Have you yielded to Jesus as Lord? He died for our sins on the cross. He rose from the dead. He reigns from heaven. The two sides now are not Jew and Gentile. The, the, the two sides now are in Christ or in the world. Those in Christ yield to his Lordship. And that's simply what really being a Christian is switching allegiance from sin, Satan, and the world and self <laughs> to Jesus. Have you confessed that faith? Faith, have you then turned your life over to Jesus? Have you been baptized? And yes, scripturally, when faith, grace-empowered faith-motivated baptism in water is where we are also baptized with the Holy Spirit. It's where we receive the Holy Spirit. We are made new. Have you done that yet? Had a baptism yesterday afternoon. We'll have the video next week on that. It's always glorious. Number two, are you sharing your faith naturally in conversations? That can be a little bit tough in today's age, but when we find a new restaurant, we like talking about a new restaurant. 
right? We'll put on social media. I don't recommend talking about Jesus too much on social media. That goes sideways really quickly. You need personal relationship. But when we find a, when we find a really great place to shop, we find a really great place to eat, we find a secret special parking place uh, to be able to get to the pier really easy, we want to talk about those good things, right? When your team wins, can't shut me up. Coogs had a good win last night. But things that excite us, we talk about naturally. There should be nothing that excites us more than the grace, the goodness, the kindness, the mercy, the love, the patience, the tenderness, the faithfulness of Jesus. Number three. Are you placing unbiblical prerequisites or expectations upon people either before or after they yield to Christ's lordship? It's real easy for us from our perspective to look back and say, man, those first Jewish Christians, man, they were just so dense. What do you mean you have to become a Jew to become a Christian? Or you have to become a Christian and then remain a Jew or, or adopt all the Jewish customs? We think, oh my gosh, that's so dense. But what do we do? <laughs> oh, no. Well, in order to be a Christian, you've got to jump through this hoop and that hoop and do this. And then after you're a Christian, oh, yeah, definitely. Mm, no, can't do that anymore. Can't do this anymore. Yeah, those are, those are rules and righteousness set by Jesus. They're not to be defined by us. How critical is the spirit and the tone that we're dealing with for others? God's gracious to us. Let's have some grace. I'd like to have Tay and the team come back up on the stage as we prepare for a time of communion. I, I love centering this part of our services on the celebration of what Jesus has done for us because this is why we are unified. This is why we are forgiven. This is how we know we are loved by God. This is how we know we are made new. Jesus taking our sin in his body on the cross. Jesus rising from the dead. Jesus giving us new life. And so we cling to that hope.